everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here in the studio with me. And today, we are covering an absolute psychopath and serial killer. And that is none other than Ivan Millette. I thought it was time that we venture across the seas here and we go and take a look at another country's most notorious serial killer. And so today we are going down under to none other than Australia, where this psychopath resides. Ivan Millet is probably one of the most feared predators and serial killers and just criminals in Australian history, actually. And the absolute horror he unleashed on seven young backpackers is something that will never be erased from the minds of the Australian people, that's for sure. But before we get into the backpack killer, I wanted to remind everybody that we have officially launched Lights Out merch. You can actually go and check it out at milehiremerch.com and then just click Lights Out. And yeah, our first collection is out, so make sure you go cop some because once it is sold out, we probably won't be restocking all of those designs. So I don't know what will stay and what will actually be gone forever. Our merch does ship internationally as well. So if you are in another country, Canada, Australia, you can still order some of our merch. And yeah, it's a great way to support the show and rep your favorite podcast. Also, another way to support the show that's actually free is if you go to iTunes, go to Lights Out Podcasts and hit subscribe, as well as if you go to Spotify and hit follow, that does really help us out quite a bit. So if you haven't done that already, and you just happen to watch the show on YouTube only, we would really appreciate it if you go and do that for us. And lastly, I'm going to be making a few changes to the layout here in this studio. So if you do watch the show on YouTube, you can usually see the my skeleton friend behind me. Uh, we actually have a new setup coming next week, hopefully. Um, I actually got a neon sign, so I'm very excited to see what that looks like. And then, yeah, we're gonna add some stuff uh, behind Joel. And yeah, we're gonna have a totally different vibe because October is right around the corner and we are going to take the level of spookiness and horror up another notch. So buckle up. It's only going to get scarier from here because like I told you guys, I'm going to take you on a dark and twisted ride every single week and it's only going to get darker from here. So make sure you bring your flashlights with you, but let's go ahead and get into Ivan Millette, the backpack killer. So Ivan Millette is one of those serial killers that I think really surprises us that he hails from Australia because I know for most of us here in the U.S., a lot of us think of Australia as like it's this beautiful place. You know, there's beautiful beaches, there's the outback, there's kangaroos hopping around, you know, there's all sorts of really cool shit to look at. And, you know, you think of Australia as being, you know, generally safe. And for the most part, Australia is actually generally safe and honestly much safer than most places here in the U.S. I actually got a chance to go to Australia a few years ago and I went to Sydney, uh, Melbourne is how it's pronounced, not Melbourne, Melbourne, which is southern Australia, and then actually went up to uh, Cairns or Cairns, Australia, which is kind of up by where the Great Barrier Reef is at. Got to check all that out. And I got to say, as being American going to Australia, it's definitely a, a different experience because you do feel this general sense of safety everywhere you go because Australians are just some of the nicest people. Like, let's be real, right? They're, they're definitely 
really chill, really laid back. I feel like even in Sydney, where which is one of their biggest cities and one of the most busiest, you know, metropolitan areas in the entire country, I felt like it was still pretty laid back. Like it didn't feel like New York City. I've been to New York City before and it definitely didn't feel like that at all. It felt very very chill and just people were generally nice and I felt very safe there. You know, I didn't really see anything sketchy or anything like that going on there. But that does not say that very, very heinous things happen there. That's for sure. Because today we're going to be talking about Ivan Millet, who is from Australia. And when you venture outside of town and you start going into the wilderness there, because I mean, what's crazy about Australia is most of the country is just open land. Like there's nothing there in the middle of, of this continent. There's absolutely nothing there. It's just forest and mountains and desert for miles and miles and miles. And, you know, and just like anywhere in the world where there's just vast expanses of land, you always wonder who is out there and if there could be somebody out there that is, you know, a serial killer, you know, it's a great place for a serial killer to go to because the chances of being caught out in the middle of nowhere go down significantly. So that leads us to our story in our case today, Ivan Millette. So the story of Ivan Millette begins on December 27, 1944, when he was born in Guildford, New South Wales, Australia. His family actually nicknamed him Mac. So Ivan's father was named Stephen Marco Millette, and he was a Croatian immigrant who worked as a laborer. He ended up marrying Ivan's mother, Margaret Piddleston, when she was just 16 years old. And the two of them had a total of 14 children together. And Ivan was the fifth born. So if you can imagine what it would be like being in a family of 14 children, I can imagine that that household was likely absolute chaos and turmoil. Like Joel and I are our only siblings, two brothers, and then we have our parents. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty chill growing up, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely super chill. And this just makes me think of uh, the movie Cheaper by the Dozen. Yeah, yeah it, <laughs> just how but, chaotic it but was. Way more chaotic yeah. uh, than, than their family. But even their family was super chaotic. So 14 children, that's a lot to deal with, especially for you know a, a family that is just trying to put food on the table and pay the bills and stuff. That's a lot to worry about. So the Millette family actually lived in the suburbs of Sydney, uh, first in Bosley Park and then later on in Liverpool. And of the 14 children, 10 of them were boys, which I can't even imagine how crazy 10 boys would be running around. I couldn't even imagine having eight other brothers. Could you? That'd be fucking insane. If there was eight more of us rolling around. I already know that'd be such a competitive like place to be with right? all those brothers and stuff. Imagine all the shit we'd get into, too. Like all the trouble you get into with fucking eight, 10 brothers total. Like we'd constantly be fighting or you know roughhousing around just getting into shit all the time like i can't even imagine what the millette family was like it must have just been absolute chaos which for the millette boys it was uh, very difficult to be uh, a millette boy because their father steven was a very strict disciplined type of guy especially with his sons and so it was difficult you know for the parents to wrangle them in all the time they had to be very strict because yeah it could get out of control very quickly and Ivan and his brothers were always in trouble and they were known by the local police. I mean, they were just always running around getting into shit. 
uh, doing crazy stuff too, like just just all kinds of crazy stuff, including petty crime and just you know rolling around causing trouble wherever they went. At one point, Ivan and a friend were even caught breaking into an army barracks in order to steal a safe. And what's interesting about the Millette family is that you know looking back now on this whole thing. Uh, one of his brothers, I believe his name is Boris, said that they knew from a very young age, he said about 10 years old, that something was just off about Ivan. There was something very different about him. He he seemed like he was born to kill, as they say, because I think when he was like 10 years old, he killed a dog. He like chopped up a dog or something crazy like that. And he would just do crazy shit. And I'm sure there's tons of other stories that we haven't even heard of where of him doing violent things from a very young age but yeah i mean that's just kind of you know what they were used to uh ivan's younger brother george actually suffered abuse and violence at the hands of ivan and he often blamed george for things that weren't his fault and would lash out at him so as you can imagine with all those brothers there's constant fighting going on they're beating each other up i'm sure it's just absolute madness and things for the family took a turn for the worse when ivan's younger sister margaret tragically died in a car accident it was a gruesome scene covered in blood and ivan actually witnessed his crash and two weeks later margaret actually died the big millet family came together after margaret's death and george has credited the number of people around to support each other with how well the family could cope but this left ivan very traumatized as you can imagine i mean the fact that he witnessed this and yeah i mean anything traumatic involving somebody dying especially is going to leave a mark on you and you know already at a young age his brother's already saying that ivan is capable of killing um from as young as 10 years old even which is just crazy and after this crash it really seemed like this kind of triggered something inside of ivan because after this happened he just got more violent so much so that he would roll around with a machete and just chop up animals i mean he'd catch a squirrel or a rabbit or you know dog cat whatever and chop it to pieces with a machete and if you didn't think that was crazy enough already guns were also very common in the household which again there's nothing wrong with guns joel and i grew up with guns we shot guns throughout pretty much our whole life so by no means is is having guns you know a reason for all the madness and our parents didn't even let us get a gun until you and i both completed that hunter safety yeah they were so big on that and I mean, safety I agree. first. Safety first. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not like our parents just like, all right, it's your tenth birthday. Here's your rifle, man. No, we had to go do like the hunter education course and pass a test, and yeah, it was always supervised. We never like had full. We couldn't just like grab our gun and then go run outside and like shoot at shit. Right. Even with an air rifle, which we also had like BB guns and things like that, and even then we weren't allowed to just run around and shoot shit with with our air rifles, but. For the Millette boys, this was very, very normal. And every one of the brothers would go out shooting and they'd go on big shooting expeditions as a family even to various different properties that they owned. And they loved to construct their own shooting range because that that is actually pretty fun to do is get some old cans, you know, get some old household items even and just shoot at it. So that was uh, pretty common with the Millette family. And Ivan was very much obsessed with guns so much so that he acquired a number of different types of guns. He kind of viewed himself as an outlaw 
and used his guns to fantasize about having full dominance and control. I think the guns made him feel really powerful, really macho. And yeah, I think he kind of really liked the whole like old West style of, you know, life really like where outlaws roll around and just, you know, do whatever they want pretty much until they got caught. And so I think he kind of really enjoyed that sort of lifestyle and sort of brought that on to himself uh, to some extent because it made him feel powerful it made him feel like he was in control of everything if he you know had his gun with him but being an outlaw i mean school does not really matter all that much to you and even when he did go to school he got into trouble constantly and by the age of 13 he was put into a residential school but then he ended up quitting school two years later for good he never finished schools because he just didn't see it relevant to himself. He just liked the run and gun lifestyle. And despite his trouble with the law, Ivan was a good worker when he had a job. For about a year, he worked for Peter Cantarella at his local fruit shop. And Ivan was such a faithful, hard worker, Peter agreed to co-sign a loan so Ivan could buy a car. But here's the catch. Once Ivan had the car, he stopped showing up for work, so he played that guy. And then he stopped making payments on the loan. And obviously as the co-signer of the loan, that debt falls back on you. So Peter was fucking furious. And as a result of all this, Ivan and his brother started harassing Peter and his wife. They would, they would, so they already fucked him over on the loan. And then what they would do is they would ride by a shop throwing rocks at him and at his store, causing more property damage. Just not giving a fuck, which I'm like, he played Peter. Like, let's be real. Ivan knew from the very beginning he wasn't going to pay off this loan. He totally knew that he could manipulate, which again, manipulation is a common trait of serial killers. And this is a great example of that master manipulation by Ivan. But one day, Ivan and his brother Billy came to the shop to start trouble while Peter was with his wife. And this was the last straw. They ended up getting in a physical fight. And although Peter ran the boys off, he was stuck with paying off the loan that he had co-signed for. And Peter believed Ivan had fallen in with a bad crowd, and that was what turned him mad. When Ivan was 17, he was caught stealing and ended up being placed in a juvenile detention center. But this wasn't the only trouble he got into when he was 17. Because on the evening of March 6, 1962, a cab driver named Neville Knight let in a young passenger in Moorbank which is a suburb of Sydney. And Neville was a retired Navy Morse code expert who had decided to make some money driving a cab. And the young passenger was 17-year-old Ivan Millette. And without warning, Ivan aimed a shotgun at Neville and fired a shot right into his back, which immediately caused Neville to lose all feeling in his legs and he became paralyzed. Ivan then jumped out of the cab and ran home. And the next morning, he confessed to his younger brother, Boris, only it wasn't a confession of guilt. He seemed pleased with himself. So at 17 years old, he basically almost killed somebody and enjoyed it. He seemingly enjoyed causing the pain that he did to poor Neville. When he told Boris this, he was only 12 years old. But even then, he could tell that Ivan had no empathy and he didn't care that he had hurt someone. Shooting Neville seemed to bring him joy, and he was thrilled by it. And even when he was telling Boris, he seemed very happy about what he had done. He described in great detail 
how easy it was to pull the trigger and the sounds of the cab driver's screams. The police ended up bringing in a suspect, Alan Dillon, and Alan believed they suspected his younger brother. So to protect him, Alan confessed to the crime and spent five years in jail. And even though Boris knew the truth about what had happened, he didn't want to see his older brother go to jail. So he decided to keep his mouth shut. Either that or he was just scared of Ivan at that point. I mean, you can't obviously trust him and he's literally killing animals, like shooting at people and stuff. So he's probably scared for his own safety. Hell yeah, I would be fucking scared of Ivan, that's for sure. Just knowing that he's capable of killing anything in the way that he does. Like, I think you're right. I think a lot of it probably was just fear. He was just definitely scared of of Ivan. And what blows my mind is after Ivan lost his sister, like I would think he would have some kind of empathy or understanding of what it means to lose like a loved one or, you know, a human being losing their life around that sort of thing. And I mean, it yeah, it just doesn't make any sense how he just went from that to a situation like that to, you know, trying to kill anything that he wants or sees basically. Well, it's bringing him that rush, that adrenaline rush or whatever. I don't even know what it is exactly that serial killers feel when they, they take somebody's life or they attempt to kill somebody. It's, it's definitely this very, I don't know, something that I definitely can't relate to. And I don't, I don't think very many of us can, but it seems like almost like they were born with this ability you know to kill and you know to have no empathy or feel bad for what they do and that was definitely ivan's case but boris wouldn't actually come out and admit for covering up for ivan until 50 years later but even boris could not keep ivan out of jail because by the age of 20 ivan was charged with breaking and entering and sentenced to 18 months in jail And Ivan was only out of jail for one month before being arrested again for driving a stolen vehicle. And this time he was sentenced to two years of hard labor. Almost soon as he was released, he was charged with theft and sentenced to three more years. And at this point in time, Ivan is still fairly young. I mean, he's in his early 20s. He's still developing. He's still very impressionable. So going to to jail for this long and, you know, spending many of these years where you're you know, still being molded, hanging out with criminals and people that are more violent than you are, definitely did not have a good effect on him whatsoever. In fact, it made him even more violent because it gave him a chance to learn from other criminals. And, you know, as prison is for most people, it's a very dehumanizing experience. And it oftentimes only makes people worse and it only makes people act out even worse when they get out. And, That was definitely the case with Ivan. He left jail full of rage, ready to unleash it on his next victim. In April of 1971, Ivan committed his next violent crime. He was at the train station near Liverpool, watching the passengers depart when he spotted two young women. They were both 18 years old and were happy to accept a ride from Ivan. But once he got them into his car, he threatened them with a knife and said if they screamed, he would kill them. He then proceeded to take the women into the forest where he bound them and gagged them. And somehow, they convinced him not to kill them. Instead, Ivan raped at least one of the women and then took them back to the car. 
and when they were back on the road, they convinced him to pull over at a gas station so they could get a drink. And shockingly, he agreed. He ended up letting them both go in together. And as soon as they walked through that door into the gas station, they started frantically asking for help, explaining that the man in the parking lot had kidnapped and raped them. So some men in the gas station actually ran out to try and catch Ivan, but he hopped in his car and drove off and ended up getting away. But based on Ivan and his car's description, he was tracked down soon after and arrested and charged with two counts of kidnapping and one count of rape. And while he was awaiting trial, him and a few of his brothers continued to commit robberies and petty crimes. Even though he was already facing serious crimes, he did not care. He was already out there breaking more laws. And his younger brother, George, would often visit his older brothers in jail, including Billy, Boris, Michael, and Ivan. So all of the Millette boys, for the most part, made their rounds through jail at some point. But Ivan decided that he didn't want to go back to jail, so he decided to fake his own death. He left a pair of shoes at the Gap, tall oceanside cliffs known for how many people committed suicide by leaping over the edge. He then fled to New Zealand, where he ended up staying there until 1974, when he got word that his mother was sick. He found out that she had a heart attack and was in the hospital, so he wanted to go back and visit her. And it didn't take long for the police to get word that Ivan was back in town. And that's when they went and arrested him again. And at the trial for the kidnapping and rape of the young hitchhikers, he denied that he had threatened them with multiple knives and had pink nylon cords in his vehicle. He also denied threatening to kill them or raping them. Unfortunately, ultimately there's not enough evidence to convict and Ivan was acquitted of these crimes. But he learned his lesson after this that he could never leave witnesses behind alive so after this he moved back home with his parents and got a job as an interstate truck driver and ivan uh, was very interesting guy he never drank or smoked and kept mainly to himself he was very much about his image and about his physical appearance he wanted to you know he wanted to be healthy he wanted to be in shape so he didn't drink or smoke which i find very very interesting and you know like obviously both of those are vices for dealing with stress and pain and different things so The fact that he didn't have either of those uh, is very interesting. But when Ivan was 30, he met a girl named Karen. She was 17 and six weeks pregnant with another man's baby, who happened to be Ivan's cousin, Mark, who was the father. And that's when Karen and Ivan started seeing each other. And eventually the couple moved in together and started planning their future. Ivan ended up treating Karen's son, Jason, like his own child. And in the mid-1980s, they got married with none of Ivan's family present. As you could probably imagine, they probably hated Ivan for this. Literally went and stole his cousin's family from him, pretty much. So during this time, the Millette family was very strained, just all around. Stephen, Ivan's father, actually died of bowel cancer in 1983, and Ivan's brother David had been in a motorcycle accident and was permanently brain damaged as a result. After Ivan and Karen started a life together, he ended up working for the Department of Main Roads, and this work took him away from his family for several days a week. All the while, Ivan's obsession with order and control continued to grow. He never left the house without being neatly dressed and perfectly groomed. He insisted on keeping a clean, orderly home, and he tended meticulously to his garden. He also loved his Harley-Davidson motorcycle and took excellent care of it. He painted model trucks and planes in camouflage colors, and eventually he would start painting his guns the same way. 
But the honeymoon phase between them didn't last very long, and Ivan started beating Karen and became even more obsessed with guns. Ivan then had another affair with his brother Walter's wife, Maureen. What a fucking asshole. Just going around stealing his brother's wives from them? Like, no wonder there's so much turmoil in their family. Like, my God. Even after having the affair with Walter's wife, Maureen, Karen stayed in the marriage because she felt she needed someone to take care of her and her son. But Ivan became more and more manipulative, jealous, and controlling. He wouldn't let Karen leave the house until she told him exactly where she was going and what time she'd return. And he forced her to provide receipts for anything she bought, including groceries. And not only that, he was also displaying some other very odd behaviors. Ivan would dress up like a cowboy wear a sheriff's badge and call himself tex this dude literally thinks he's in red dead redemption or some shit you know yeah, like yeah that's dressed a, that's up a great like point. this and everything like come on man just going around taking whoever's wife he wants to and he's like yeah he's just like bring it on man i got the big guns yeah he looks fucking ridiculous he yeah that's a great that's a great analogy joel he looks like the guy from red dead redemption for sure <laughs> just way less cool Abusive relationships became the norm for Ivan. There were long periods of calm where Ivan seemed to settle down and relax, but then he would explode with anger over the smallest slight, and then he would beat Karen mercilessly. Once Ivan's own mother, Margaret, even called the police on him for beating his wife. Karen never knew when the next violent outburst would happen, and she was a nervous wreck all the time. Can't imagine living with this psychopath. In 1987, Karen's mother came and helped her pack up while Ivan was on the road. She took all of her and Jason's belongings and all the furniture in the house, and she just moved the fuck out and filed for divorce. As revenge, once Ivan found out, he visited Karen's parents' house and set it on fire, burning down the house's entire front side. By the end of 1989, Karen and Ivan were divorced. And he resented her entire being, especially her ability to claim his income. So in spite of all that, he quit his job and started working under a fake name to avoid having to pay spousal support. What a piece of shit, right? In the late 1980s and early 1990s, backpacking in Australia was very popular with people in their late teens to mid-20s looking for fun and adventure. Because as you can probably imagine, I mean, I've never done it myself for this very reason that it's it can be dangerous backpacking and hitchhiking and kind of just going on this wild adventure especially you know coming going to another country and then a lot of people do that like a lot of people go to Europe and they backpack around you know they stay in hostels and they you know get hitch they hitchhike and you know they're very you're very vulnerable in that state but you can also have a very cool adventure and you it's a great way to see you know a lot of places that you know the normal tourist doesn't see and it's also a great way to do do traveling at a very very low cost so it was very common for young people to backpack alone or with some friends you know maybe before they go back to school or after graduating or you know getting done with military service it's an exciting venture you know before you know settling back down and getting serious about your studies or your career and in order to fund your your hitchhiking adventure around the country you could get you know little odd jobs picking fruit you know, in order to make enough money to move along to the next spot. It's a cheap adventure that tourists and locals alike regarded as safe for the most part. You know, it's very common. People did it all the time. 
Youth hostels started popping up around the country, and this expensive lodging for visiting backpackers made Australia an even more popular destination for young travelers, which, unfortunately, Ivan happened to take a job where he was a road worker all over the state, and he would constantly be moving around and working on the roads. What's interesting is that he always brought his gun with him, a true outlaw, man. He would even bring his guns to the job site when it was completely irrelevant to his job. One of Ivan's bosses for several years, Don Borthwick, knew about Ivan's attachment to his firearms, and he kind of viewed Ivan as a loner, and he watched as his other workers hung out and drank together, while Ivan never socialized after work, not even with women. In fact, about the only interactions Ivan had outside of work were showing off his guns, at least that's what Don assumed he was doing. But in reality... Ivan had a very dark, secretive life. He often left work for extended periods, giving nobody any clue as to what he was doing or where he was going, and he would ask for others to cover for him. Ivan also delivered truck tires as part of his job, so he had plenty of opportunities to be alone on the open road. And on December 30th, 1989, Ivan picked up two hitchhikers from Melbourne, James Gibson, and Deborah Everest. They were both 19 years old and planned to hitchhike with friends to the border town of Albury to attend Confest, a yearly five-day bush campout festival to explore subcultures of the alternative movement. But after a mix-up, the friends had left without them, and James and Deborah had to make the trip alone. So Ivan picked them up and then took them to the Blanglo State Forest, where he unfortunately would violently torture and murder them. Ivan savagely stabbed James through his upper spine, and this wound would have left him paralyzed, just like Ivan's first victim, Neville Knight. James was then stabbed at least seven more times in his back and chest, puncturing his heart and lungs. James ended up being left in a fetal position, with his shoes still on and his black floppy hat he always wore tossed near his body. Ivan then bound Deborah and beat her viciously, He stabbed her in the back just like James. He broke her jaw, stabbed her in the skull, which fractured it in two places, and then he dismembered her and scattered her body parts all around. Her body was so torn apart, her spine was left in a clearing over a steep gorge. Literally tore her to pieces. Clearly, he's just, it's just like a game to him. Like, there's no rhyme or reason for what he's doing at all. It's just like this savage side of him, this instinct to kill, I guess. I don't even know what it is, but to completely just destroy two human beings is beyond evil. About a month later, on January 25th, 1990, a British backpacker in his 20s named Paul Onions was looking for a ride from Liverpool to Melbourne. He had served five years in the Royal Navy and decided to take this trip as a way to see Australia. He planned to work as a fruit picker to make money, and like many others, he viewed hitchhiking as a safe way to travel. Ivan spotted Paul and offered him a ride. He introduced himself as Bill, and Paul was happy to accept. He had been trying to find a ride all day, and Bill seemed like a cool guy to travel with. Once they got out on the open road, Bill was chatting and starting to make some racist comments, which made Paul uncomfortable but he wasn't sure what he could do. And then Bill pulled over to the Belanglo State Forest entrance and told Paul he was going to get some tapes from the back to listen to because they were about to lose the radio signal. 
Because the thing about the Belenglo State Forest is that it is a huge area of open land and forest where you could very easily disappear and nobody would ever know you were there. You could scream and no one would ever hear you. It's a very desolate area in between Sydney and Canberra. So when Bill or Ivan told him that I need to grab some tapes from the back. This obviously made Paul very uneasy. I think you could just probably feel his energy that something's not right with this guy. But Paul told himself that there was nothing to worry about. He opened the door and stretched his legs. And that's when Bill immediately snapped at him and told him to get back in the car and shut the door. Which if anybody ever did that to me, I would definitely right away realize I need to get the fuck out of this car because why'd this guy just snap at me? And as you can imagine, Paul became very anxious all of a sudden, and he tried to calm himself down. But then he looked into the center console and saw a bunch of tapes, and he realized that something was very wrong. Why was he going into back for tapes if the tapes were right here in the center console? And that's when Bill reappeared, pointing a gun at Paul and telling him, do you know what this is? Paul then put up his hands and tried to reason with Bill. But then he saw that Bill had a length of rope. And this rope scared him even more than the gun because he knew what this meant. It meant that Bill wasn't going to just kill him. He was planning to keep him for a while and probably torture him. And in a fraction of a second, Paul made the decision to open the door and flee. He ran down the street as fast as he could with Bill or Ivan chasing after him. Paul was frantically trying to wave down cars, but no one was stopping, and Ivan was catching up to him and ended up grabbing him. But Paul fought him off and kept running. And as he ran, he heard gunshots, so he started zigzagging, as he was taught to do in the Navy under the threat of gunfire. He knew that he needed to escape, or it would cost him his life. He decided to jump in front of the next car that came down the road, Either the vehicle would stop or it would hit him, but Paul didn't care. He knew he'd rather be hit by a car than endure whatever Bill or Ivan had planned. A woman named Joanne Berry was driving her van with her sister and their combined five children when suddenly a man jumped right in front of them. She slammed on the brakes and watched as the panicked man yelled and banged on the doors. Joanne was worried about the kid's safety and was telling him to just leave them alone when Paul managed to slide the van door open and jump in. He then started screaming for her to drive, 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 and crouched down behind the driver's side seat. At this point, Ivan's in the front of the van, staring them down, and Paul saw the look in his eye, and he knew that he had just escaped certain death. After hearing Paul's story, Joanne was so thankful that she stopped, and she ended up taking off, leaving Ivan in the dust, and bringing him to the nearest police station, where Paul gave his statement to the officer. Paul had actually left his backpack behind in Ivan's car, which had personal letters and his passport inside. But luckily for him, his Australian trip continued with his girlfriend. But for the weeks afterward, he was so anxious he would get physically sick. He was haunted by what had happened and this Bill guy. And even years later, he would still remember the look on Bill's face as he sped away. And if I was Paul, even though I got away, I would be scared to death knowing that Ivan had like letters, which probably had his address on there and especially his passport. Like that contains so much personal information about Paul that like 
dude, how could that guy sleep at night after that? I mean, come on. I don't think he was sleeping, man. I'm, I'm sure he was very worried for that very fact that he had all of his personal information that maybe, you know, this bill guy or Ivan would hunt him down and finish what he had tried to do. There's actually some great clips of Paul talking about this attempted kidnapping. And, you know, I think that I can't possibly do, do it justice as to exactly what it was like to come face to face with Ivan. So we'll go ahead and play some of that now. Australia seemed the one last place I thought on earth where there was plenty of um, adventure left. The last frontier. No, the last, that's all I imagine it. Where men are men. I, I thought, you know, give me a chance to relax after being in the Navy and get a job and uh, see plenty of sunshine and have a good look around. You were wandering along here? Yes. Looking for something to drink? Yeah. So it all comes back. Oh, yeah. He approached you. Oh, as I came out of the shop, he says, do you need, he see me rucksack on my back, he says, do you need a lift? And I thought, oh, great, yeah. Hold this, the car, bring the back in the back and we'll get going. My lucky day. Yeah, brilliant. Just, that's all I need. So this is where the uh, journey starts. And you meet your first Australian. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I thought it was. He looked a bit like um, Dennis Lilly to me. The cricketer. Because <laughs> I like cricket, and the only Australians I'd really seen was at the cricket match. So that it was a big impression at first. I thought, oh, you know, as you laugh to yourself, I thought, oh, it's Dennis Lilly. Like, <laughs> it be, became a bit anti-racial to the, you know, the immigrants who were living in Australia. You found them, you know, quite offensive, really. I was so happy to get get the the ride, and then for all of a sudden. I thought, oh no, first go, I've got the, I've got the nutter. That was my initial reaction. And then uh, for some reason, we just started to slow down a bit. And he just kept looking in his mirror. Mm. And, I, and if you can drive yourself, you find it a bit odd. And then I just said, I said, what's the problem, though? That, that was his excuse, really, to get some cassettes from under the seat to put, it, put some music on. Well, it just seemed odd, because there was actually cassettes in between us. And he got out to search under the seat. Mm. I thought... You know, you, there's two sides to your brain. There's the calm side saying, oh, you should be happy this guy's given you a lift, what you're worried about. Then there's the other side saying, hold on, there's something, something that doesn't feel right there. So the initial reaction to me then was, well, I'll just stretch my legs and see what, see what it, see how it provokes him. Why are you getting out of the car? After all, it's a sunny day and there are yeah, quite a few cars that's around. That's I had a look around. I thought, oh, well, what's the problem? Surely it's not here, like, not in this situation. So I thought, I'll just get back in and see what happens. So I got back in the vehicle and just put my seatbelt on. He watched me do his. He got back in. So I thought, oh, no problem. No problem at all. Then the next minute, he jumps straight back out and says, I'll just have to look under the seat one more time. And I thought, this is it. I'll have one of those cassettes, huh? So he just bent over, looked under the seat and just pulled out a revolver. And obviously all the questions was answered in one one movement. Easy, what's wrong, man? And then the next minute, he just pulled this rope from under the seat. And when I seen the rope, that just scared me more than the gun. But as soon as I seen the rope, I thought, oh, that's going to be a... You know, it's going to take a bit of time. He's going to do whatever he wants. I was just, you know, obviously panicking and just, just running off away from the vehicle. And then I just heard the gun go off. And that was like... 
it was like a massive jolt to your system, like you knew it was for real then, like, you know, oh, God, really panicking then. I was just, just really panicking then to try and stop some vehicles. And I obviously could see what was happening. And I was just stopping, slowing down, and just driving straight off. I thought, oh, nobody's going to stop. It's just like a passing of time. I, just, I was just about to give up and say, oh, yeah, he's won, he's won. I better go back. And I thought, if I go back there, that you know, he just seemed that was the end if I go back there. And that sort of when I made my mind up what I was going to do. I thought the next vehicle that comes over the, the bow of the hill, I'm just going to stop it no matter what. What, jump in front of it? Yeah, it just seemed I'd rather stop a car, get killed, than go back to that vehicle and face the end that way. If I hadn't stopped, yeah, he would have joined the others in the forest. Or you'd have run him over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he's a very lucky man. As she pulled away, I just looked back and had one quick last glance. When you did look back, as the car retreated, uh, did you see the look in his face? Well, like a smirk, like. It's a bit strange the way he was looking. And that's the, the last impression I had, like. So I think it's pretty clear that Ivan, you know, or as he was going by Bill, was pretty set on killing Paul. I, I think for sure that if Paul hadn't escaped, he was going to kill him. And it doesn't seem like for any specific reason other than Ivan just wanted to kill. And so obviously having Paul get away from him was very frustrating for him. And so, you know, he knew that it wasn't going to stop there. But Ivan waited almost a full year before striking again. On January 20th, 1991, Ivan picked up a 21-year-old German tourist named Simi Schmiedel. Simi was traveling alone from Sydney to Melbourne, and she was an outgoing and adventurous woman. She had four days to get to Melbourne to meet her mother off a plane from Munich, and Simi wanted to get there as quickly as possible, and she even carried a knife for protection, so she had no hesitations about hitchhiking. So when Ivan came along and offered her a ride, she gladly accepted. But then Ivan did what he always did and ended up taking her to the Blanglo State Forest, where he sadly tortured her mercilessly. But he kept Simi alive for quite a while as he escalated his brutality. Ivan stabbed her at least eight times, and before the fatal stab wound, he severed her spine in two places paralyzing her he left her partially clothed still wearing her shoes 3.1 miles from where he left his first murder victims deborah everest and james gibson after that brutal killing ivan waited nearly another year before picking up his next victims who were german backpackers 21 year old gabor neugebauer and onya hebshied on december 26 1991 and these two had just spent their winter break in Bali and decided to head down to Bondi Beach, which is a very famous beach in Australia for Christmas. And they were scheduled to arrive home in early January of 1992, when Ivan picked them up after they left a hostel in King's Cross in the inner city of Sydney, when they were on their way to Mildura. And then Ivan took them to the forest, where he shot Gabor in the head six times, and then he decapitated Anya. He ended up burying them in shallow graves in the forest. A few months later, on April 18, 1992, 
Two British backpackers, 21-year-old Caroline Clark and 22-year-old Joanne Walters, were also leaving King's Cross. Both young women were smart and adventurous and loved to travel. They were backpacking in King's Cross when they met, and they hit it off and decided to travel on together. They planned to work as fruit pickers to make money like many young backpackers at the time. Now, Caroline's parents had warned her about the dangers of hitchhiking, but they felt safe together and accepted a ride from Ivan. So Ivan was just cruising around looking for backpackers, knowing how vulnerable they were. And, of course, once he picked them up, he took them to the forest, where he bound both women and raped them. Ivan then used Caroline for target practice, shooting her 10 times in the head. Joanne was stabbed 14 times with nine stab wounds to her back, which would have paralyzed her. Ivan then left Caroline with a sweater tied around her head, and both women had their hands raised above their heads as well. He also took a shirt that belonged to Caroline and gave it to his girlfriend at the time. Clearly, Ivan enjoyed the power that he held over his victims, and he got sexual gratification from the violence. He continued to escalate the brutality of his attacks. Six weeks later, Caroline's parents expected to receive a call from her for her sister's birthday. Caroline always called home on special occasions, and she checked in often. When she didn't call, they were very worried, so they contacted the police and started calling hostels in Australia. They sent stacks of flyers to all the hostels and asked that anyone that would come through pass them out. And pretty soon, the flyers spread across all over Australia, and the search for the missing girls continued. But as the weeks turned to months, Caroline's parents started to lose hope. On September 19, 1992, two joggers were on a trail in the Belanglo State Forest when they were stopped in their tracks by the smell of death. They followed the foul smell, and 10 feet off of the trail, they found the body of Caroline Clark. The police immediately started searching the area, and the next day they found the body of Joanne Walters about 100 feet away from where Caroline was found. And after they found the bodies, the police reached out to the families. The police also recovered Winchester bullet casings at the scene. Beyond that, though, there was no other evidence, and the case went cold. Bruce Pryor was a local man who was following the story of the murdered women found in the Blanglo State Forest. He went into the forest often and knew the trails very well, and he had heard a news report that the search for additional evidence was called off. He also heard reports of other missing backpackers in the area. So he started walking the trails through the forest more deliberately. Bruce found himself searching, walking off the trails, searching the ground, and turning over debris. He wasn't sure what he was looking for, but he wanted to help. On October 5, 1993, Bruce found something on the ground that caught his eye. It was white and round, and as he stepped closer, he realized it was a human skull. Bruce picked it up and brought it back to his car, where he then contacted the police, and another search began. This time they set up a perimeter, and it wasn't long before they found a body. The skull that Bruce had found belonged to Deborah Everest, and the body was that of James Gibson, which was found 24 yards away. Deborah and James were found about a half a mile where the first bodies had been discovered. A task force of 300 officers was formed and led by police superintendent Clive Small, and they started searching the forest more thoroughly. They searched every spot they could physically get to. Officers were literally on their hands and knees sifting through debris, and they walked through the forest side by side in order to ensure no area was missed. And then, on November 1st, 1993, the search team found another body, This one was 3.1 miles from the bodies found a month before. 
and a dental pathologist confirmed these remains belonged to Simi Schmidl. Once his fifth body was found, the police announced that they were dealing with a serial killer. And the announcement of this made international news. Papers in Germany and England covered the story extensively since the backpackers found had come from both countries. In Birmingham, England, Paul Onions, a hitchhiker who narrowly escaped being murdered by Ivan Millette, read about the murdered backpackers in the newspaper. In the article, he saw a number to call to share any information about the murders. He called the number and told his story. And in the first 24 hours after the tip line was set up, over a thousand calls came in. And Paul was one of over 5,000 who called. And it was just far too much information for the police to process. And then on November 4th, 1993, three days after Simi's body was found, the police found the bodies of Anya Habshid and Gabor Neugebauer. Anya had been decapitated and her head was never found. That's so sad they never found her skull. But this brought the body count to seven. They also found 47 cartridge casings that matched those found near Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters. And the next day, the reward was increased from 100000 to 500000 for information leading to the killer's arrest, or maybe even killers. Because I think that they were thinking that possibly because there was multiple victims at each of the sites that perhaps there was more than one killer. Because, I mean, I think a lot of people would maybe assume that it would be very difficult to handle two people at once. But I guess if you're the one with the weapon, it, it probably makes sense. But police at first were definitely not sure if it was one killer or two. The police enlisted a leading Australian forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Rod Milton, to create a criminal profile of their suspect. Dr. Milton described an individual who came from a big family that was close, but was very distant from society. The person knew guns very well and thought of himself as a real tough guy. He was also a loner with a criminal record who enjoyed inflicting violence and the power that he had over his victims. He also liked to humiliate his victims and likely got sexual pleasure from these heinous acts. This person probably came from an underprivileged background and was a member of the working class and was likely a hard worker. He may have been molested as a child, as this person clearly hated women and authority, but loved power. He was clearly also a local and knew the Blanglo Forest very well, which this is a pretty spot-on description of Ivan Millet, I feel like. Dr. Milton also believed these crimes had been committed by two people, One was an older man who was dominant and sadistic, but restrained, and the second was more impulsive, and the dominant killer could exploit the lack of impulse control. And when two people were killed at a time, the bodies were found apart from each other and with different types of wounds, suggesting two different people did the killing. Once Dr. Milton had the description, the police did not take very long to figure out what family fit this description, and it became very clear that the Millett family definitely did. And when they went and interviewed the family, all the brothers had alibis except for Ivan. But with no hard evidence, all they could do was put him under surveillance. The police then went and talked to his ex-wife, Karen, and she told them about the violence she had endured and how much Ivan loved guns. They started looking deeper into his criminal background, and they found the case of the two hitchhikers who accused him of kidnapping and rape from when he was a young man. The police then spoke with Ivan's brother, Alex, and his wife for over an hour, And as they were preparing to leave, Alex's wife gave them a backpack given to them by Ivan. And what do you know? This backpack belonged to Simi Schmiedel. That Christmas, Ivan's brother Richard helped Ivan move guns out of his house. He later denied that they did this because the police were moving in. 
As investigators continue processing the tips coming in, the police found the statement from Paul Onions. On May 2nd, 1994, they arranged for Paul to fly from England to Australia secretly. On the plane, Paul started to think about how the man who had tried to abduct and murder him still had his passport and other personal belongings. He began to get paranoid that this was an elaborate setup by the man to get him back to Australia. So he literally thought that Ivan was one setting all this up to get him back to Australia to kill him. He was relieved when he was met at the airport by two detectives who immediately showed their badges. They then took Paul to the station and showed him pictures of 13 suspects. And when he saw the picture of Ivan Millette, he had an immediate reaction of panic. He identified Ivan as the man who tried to abduct him. On May 22, 1994, the police had a search warrant. They prepared to raid Ivan's home and several other properties belonging to the members of the Millette family. When they arrived at Ivan's house, they called him and told him to come outside. 49-year-old Ivan Millette was then arrested for the attempted kidnapping and robbery of Paul Onions, and then his property was thoroughly searched. During the search, they found many personal items that belonged to the murdered backpackers, including clothes, backpacks, water bottles, camping equipment, and more. These were Ivan's trophies that he took and used to relive his crimes. Such a weird thing that serial killers do that they take little trophies from their killings, from their victims. And in Ivan's case, he took their camping equipment, basically. They also found hunting knives, rifles, ammunition, and a sword. Pieces of a Ruger rifle were found in a bag stuffed into a wall. The ballistics team reassembled the rifle and fired it, and they determined that it matched the bullets that were used to murder Caroline Clark. They also found a shirt that Paul Onions had left behind in Ivan's vehicle when he escaped. They also turned up a water bottle that belonged to Simi Schmiedel. Her name had been scratched off, but an infrared photo revealed that it was still there. Ivan claimed he didn't know anything about a gun hidden in the wall, but the pieces found had been painted in camouflage just as Ivan had done to his models. When they searched his brother Richard's property, they found a sleeping bag, cover and mat, and a tent that belonged to Caroline Clark in his garden shed. They also found a sleeping bag that belonged to Joanne Walters inside a cupboard in the shed. That's so fucked up. He literally gave his victim's belongings to his family. And his family accepted it, like, from Ivan? They were just like, oh, thanks, Ivan, for the camping gear. And meanwhile, the, it's literally a murdered individual's stuff. Like, that's just so bizarre. Richard couldn't explain how those items got on his property. And he suggested multiple times that him and Ivan could have been framed by the police. Yeah, of course, that's what it is. But on May 31st, he was charged for the murders of the seven backpackers. His trial started on March 25th, 1996, and the parents of all the victims attended, as well as Paul Onions, who was the star witness. It wasn't until he was called as a witness in the trial that he told his parents and siblings what really happened to him that day. He told them that it was only a robbery because he saw the pain caused to the victims' families. He didn't want to cause any unnecessary pain to his own family. Ivan's brother William testified that Ivan had been with him and other family members when the German backpackers were murdered. William's wife, Caroline, also had a picture of Ivan at another family gathering, dated on the back as another alibi. But it was later discovered that she had changed the date. Caroline claimed she doesn't remember when she changed the date or why. During a heated day of testimony by Caroline, tensions were high inside the courtroom. As William and Caroline exited the courthouse, a photographer tried to take pictures, and William attacked him. 
he ended up being charged with assault for the incident. And crazy enough, Ivan even testified on his own behalf during the trial. Of course, of course he did, because he feels like he's in control, just like Ted Bundy did. During cross-examination, he made a mistake, though. When asked about gloves they found at the crime scene in the forest, he started to say something about them as if they were his gloves, but he then stopped himself. The prosecutor asked no further questions, and the court adjourned for the day. The trial ended up lasting 15 weeks, and the jury deliberated for three days. Ultimately, Ivan was found guilty on all charges on July 27, 1996. He was sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences for the murders and six years for the crimes against Paul, and sent to Goulburn Correctional Center, an Australian supermaximum security prison in Goulburn, New South Wales. Ivan maintained his innocence, though, even after all that, and he tried to appeal his sentence, but his appeals failed. He never publicly confessed to any of his crimes. However, according to his brother George, Ivan allegedly confessed to the murders to their mother during a visit before she died in 2001. During the trial, his defense attorney suggested that another member of the Millette family was the real guilty party. Ivan's brother Richard has been suspected as a potential accomplice. He allegedly said stabbing a woman is like cutting a loaf of bread. A co-worker claimed Richard said as well, there are two Germans out there. They haven't found them yet. There are more bodies out there. They haven't found them all yet. Another co-worker said Richard told him, I know who killed the Germans. Richard didn't deny that he said these things, though he didn't admit it either. He simply said it could be true. It's interesting how Ivan's family members basically helped like cover up yeah. some of that evidence and everything. Yeah. I think they knew. Yeah. I, I think they knew way before because, I mean, I think they probably even knew that some of the gear that they were getting was from his victims because, I mean, all of them seem when you look at them in interviews and stuff, they all seem to not be surprised that Ivan ended up being this monstrous psychopath serial killer that he became. And I think they knew, I think they knew that he was out there killing people. And I think even his, some of his brothers may even have helped him with some of, uh, you know, moving the bodies and things like that. Cause I don't know. I have a hard time believing that Ivan all on his own could have, you know, moved around all these bodies and, you know, restrained all these people all by himself and no one got away from him. I don't know. I find, I find that very, very hard to believe, I guess. And I can't believe even though they kind of helped out Ivan in certain ways, like they had no repercussions when it came to the trial. Like why weren't they given some type of punishment? I mean, especially with the photo, like changing the date, like, yeah, even though that seems simple, it's like, come on, you're, that specific photo is evidence to the case. And if you're trying to, you know, manipulate it, then you're, you're basically a part of it. Right. And no remorse for the victims, just basically being like, well, he said he didn't do it. So he must not have Mm -hmm. done it. Like he must be innocent. And that's, what's wild about Ivan is he maintained his innocence. Like completely. He's like, I had nothing to do with it. You got the wrong guy. He really believes he was framed by the police and that, you know, the, the real killers out there still, but everybody pretty much knows it was him. And many people, including his brother Boris, believe that he is responsible for at least double, if not quadruple, the number of murders. Some even estimate that he could be responsible for up to 58 murders of missing people in Australia. Because there's a number of open cases that are still unsolved that fit his MO dating back to 1971. 
In some of these cases, he was a person of interest or proven to be in the area when it happened. 20-year-old Karen Rowland was driving behind her sister heading to a hotel in Canberra, Australia on February 26, 1971. Her sister was leading and lost sight of Karen's car. Karen never arrived at the hotel and her car was found with no gas in the tank on the side of the road. Her body was found months later positioned in the same way Ivan Millette left many of his victims with her hands over her head. In the summer of 1972, 19 and 20-year-old student nurses Robin Hoynville Bartram and Anita Cunningham were spending the summer hitchhiking around Queensland. They were heading to Bowen to visit Robin's mother when they disappeared. Robin's body was found under a bridge in Sensible Creek, Queensland, and she had been shot in the head. Anita has never been found. Robin and Anita had talked to a woman at a hotel and told her that they were getting a ride with a man named Cowboy. On October 5th, 1973, 18-year-old Gabriel John Key and 16-year-old Michelle Riley hitchhiked to the Gold Coast to attend a party. They were seen the next morning getting out of a taxi. Gabrielle's body was found over a steep embankment of the Pacific Coast Highway in Ormo on October 13th. Michelle's body was found on October 23rd off a roadway on Mount Tambourine Highway. Both of them had been bludgeoned, had fractured skulls, and had been sexually assaulted. Ivan was also a person of interest in the disappearances of Leanne Goodall, Robin Hickey, and Amanda Robinson. 20-year-old Leanne Goodall was dropped off at Muswell Brook train station by her brother on December 30th, 1978. Instead of going to Sydney as planned, she decided to go to Swansea in New South Wales, Australia to see her parents. She got off the train in Broadmeadow in central Newcastle near Swansea and was seen at the Star Hotel at 3.30 in the afternoon. After this, she was never seen again and her body was never found. On April 20th, 1979, 18-year-old Robin Hickey left her family's home in Swansea to meet her friends at Belmont Hotel about 11 miles away. She was also never seen again. Amanda Robinson was only 14 years old when she disappeared on her way home to Swansea from a school dance on April 21st, 1979. Are you seeing a pattern here? It's all young women too. It's all victims that would definitely fit Ivan Millett's MO for sure. In July of 1980, Deborah Balkin and Gillian Jameson, both 20 years old, were at Parramatta's Tollgate Hotel and were seen talking to a man wearing a cowboy hat. Deborah called a friend and said the man was a friend of Gillian's and planned to take them to a party. She called him the gardener fellow, and they were never seen again. That sounds very much like Ivan, because how many guys, I'll tell you right now, I did not see a lot of cowboys rolling around in Australia, that's for sure. So, I mean, I, I know there's definitely some some out there uh, that you know are ranchers and farmers and stuff that wear cowboy hats and stuff, but to have a guy wearing a cowboy hat in these hotels, just talking to random people, offering rides, also going by the gardener fellow or talking about gardening. That's very, very suspicious. Definitely think that was Ivan. 18-year-old Peter Letcher disappeared in November of 1987 while on his way to visit a friend in Sydney. His body was found in 1988 in the Gentleman State Forest. He had been shot five times in the head and stabbed, and Ivan Millette was linked to this case. On September 6, 1991, Diane Panaccio disappeared without a trace. Her body was found in the Talaganda State Forest in November 1991. Ivan is also potentially linked to a cold case of the disappearance of a 16-year-old Gordana Kovetsky from 1994. In 2001, 2003, and 2005, Ivan was suspected in the disappearance of three women backpackers from Newcastle. 
the disappearance of two nurses, and the disappearance of hitchhiker Annette Briffa. In early 2001, Ivan rebelled in prison by swallowing razor blade staples and a metal chain. Later that same year, he swallowed a piece from the inside of the toilet in his cell. Four years later, on July 18, 2005, Millette's defense attorney from the rape and kidnapping case in 1974, John Marsden, made a bizarre confession from his deathbed. He said that Ivan's sister, Shirley Soar, who died in 2003, was his accomplice in the murders of Joanne Walters and Caroline Clark. In January of 2009, Ivan ended a hunger strike to get a PlayStation by cutting off his pinky finger with a plastic knife. He wrapped it in newspaper and put it in an envelope addressed to the Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. He then gave the envelope to the guards to mail and was taken to the hospital, but his finger was not reattached. What a fucking psycho, man. November 20th, 2010, Ivan's great-nephew, 17-year-old Matthew Millette, and his 18-year-old friend, Cohen Klein took two other friends into the Blenglos National Forest, Chase Day and David Octoloni, to drink and smoke weed. It was David's 17th birthday. During a 15-minute recording on Cohen's cell phone, David is accused, threatened, insulted, injured, and eventually murdered by Matthew by repeatedly chopping him with a double-sided axe. As Chase begged Cohen to do something, he told him to go wait in the car. Matthew bragged to his friends about the murder the next day, saying that his last name is Millette, and so I did what they do. That's what I'm starting to think, is like, I think that this family, I think there's more people, more brothers that are involved in this, and this could even be like a family of killers. Like, imagine if it's multiple family members that are serial killers that are still out there, and because it's like, I just have a hard, like, I guess one person could do all these killings, but it's like, that's a lot of ground to cover. And that's just so many times that he doesn't get caught. Like I feel like he's got to have help from someone else in his family. There's somebody else that's wrapped up in this for sure. Matthew and Cohen Klein were arrested for the murder and found guilty in 2012. Matthew was sentenced to 43 years and Cohen was sentenced to 32 years for his part in the murder. In 2015, Boris Millet finally confessed to knowing that his brother Ivan shot and paralyzed cab driver Neville Knight over 50 years before. He even met the man who spent time in jail for the crime, Alan Dillon. After the incident, Neville went back to school to become a computer engineer until his death in 1988 and worked as a disability advocate. After knowing what Ivan did to the people he murdered, it's possible he was trying to paralyze Neville. Evidence showed that with many of his victims, Ivan paralyzed them before murdering them so he could torture them more easily and have complete control. How sick is that man who does that god that's just i can't even imagine that at all or going through that god former detective clive small who is responsible for catching ivan believed that ivan never admitted guilt because confessing would take away his power boris millet was exiled from the millet family because he believed ivan committed the murders the rest of the family believed ivan was set up and boris actually changed his name once his family cut off contact that's very, very suspicious to me, honestly. I'm like, they all are on board that they think he was set up by who? If anything, he was set up by his family, and maybe they're involved. So that's why they're, you know, anybody that believes that he is guilty is going to get exiled. So Boris definitely got exed out of the family. And Boris was just telling the truth. I mean, their whole family should be telling the truth as well. But I mean, it just goes back to how it seems like their whole family was in, in it with Ivan the entire time. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like they're just 
being very like they won't talk to media at all they won't do interviews they've they haven't really said much about ivan at all they're keeping their mouth shut and i think it's because they know they knew way more they're definite i feel like they're responsible in some way shape or form i don't know how deep they're in it but i feel like they are definitely involved in the killings in some way and maybe they even know more information about some of his other victims or or where their remains might be and i think it's fucked up that they're you know keeping their mouth shut they should be doing everything they can to try and you know give these poor families of missing loved ones some closure but instead they're just staying off the grid just completely keeping their mouth shut i think that's definitely suspicious in the summer of 2015 goldburn ghost tours started advertising belanglo forest ghost tours to visit the place where the infamous serial killer ivan millet tortured and killed his victims the advertising campaign even said once you enter belanglo state forest you may never come out and obviously this is pretty fucked up so the company faced immediate backlash and victims advocates and the families of ivan's victims came out against the tours and the government confirmed that the company was operating without a permit and it got shut down in july of 2015 which rightfully so i think it's completely fucked up to capitalize off of this and try to make money off of you know other people's pain and suffering especially especially this particular case ivan on the other hand just got old and sick in prison and eventually was diagnosed with esophageal and stomach cancer in 2019 and shortly after on october 27th 2019 at the age of 74 years old he died in long bay prison and all the way up until right before he died he continued to maintain his innocence that he had nothing to do with these killings and that he, this was all a setup that the reason they found stuff at his house, the victims, things at his house is that the police set him up and that he had nothing to do with it, which is just the most cowardly thing you could possibly do. I mean, at least in your very last moments before you die, you can at least give some sort of closure, some answers about, you know, stand up and be a man and and take responsibility for what you did and nope not ivan ivan went to the grave with all of the all the secrets about what he had done and i think it's pretty obvious what he did i mean there's definitely enough evidence to tie him to these murders and i'm sure there's so many more I, i think that he probably did commit dozens of murders and there's probably so many unsolved missing persons cases especially the ones that we touched at the end that he is connected to because i feel like unless there is another millet brother that is you know doing things the same way which is possible i still think is very possible obviously i have no evidence or proof to back that up but i think it is something to consider but at the end of the day i mean maybe ivan was just you know the most notorious serial killer to ever walk australia and uh unfortunately he caused so much horror and havoc while he was alive and just thank god he's dead at this point and you know people can start to try to heal but never forget those that died especially the seven that we talked about today but with that being said that is the serial killer ivan millette a truly vicious individual absolutely a psychopath probably has the you know probably born this way for the most part i mean started the violence very very young it's always one of those things i wonder if there's some mental illness there too maybe there's something with the family i feel like there's more history with the family there's some more going on behind the scenes that we even know with them 
that I think played into all of this. But yeah, this is definitely the most notorious serial killer in all of Australian history. Ivan Millet, the backpack killer. Truly, truly scary stuff. This case definitely reaffirms my belief that hitchhiking is never fully safe. So try to stay away from that as much as you can. Obviously, I get it. Sometimes you have to hitchhike, but definitely know the risks that you're taking because you just never know, man. You just never know who's out there. And that's what's so scary is like somebody that may seem completely innocent to you might try to take advantage of you and you just never know what people are capable of. There's just too many psychopaths running around to to take a chance on your life like that. But I don't know. Hopefully there's a the lesson to be learned here for those that are, you know, hitchhike and backpackers for that matter. Like just be safe, be aware and, you know, always have a, an escape plan. I feel like always try to be safe, arm yourself if you can. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and end today's episode there. Hopefully you enjoy this episode of lights out podcast. Make sure you cop some merch, malharmerch.com. But until next time, lights out, everybody.